Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence. And thank you for the many ways that you challenge us through your word. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we would have open hearts and minds uh, to this passage that we're going to study in James. Lord, teach us what it means to persevere. Lord, teach us what it means to look to you for every good and perfect thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Thanks to those of you online as well. And um, we are in week two now of our James series. We have dug into the book of James, found in the New Testament. And last week, we covered the first four verses. You might have heard a little overlap in what we heard read this morning. So we're not going to dig into those first three verses deep today. Uh, But I do encourage you, if you weren't part of last week's message, uh, if you haven't heard that yet, please go back and listen to that. It provides a lot of foundation and context for the entire book of James uh, that we might reference too frequently throughout this sermon series. Uh, To sum it up, James is a general letter. It was not written to a specific church or a specific person like many of Paul's letters are in the New Testament. Uh, Rather, it was to any and all of God's people uh, that were in Jerusalem or spread out anywhere else. And so because it was written in this manner, there's a whole lot of things we can learn from it, too. Uh, Imagine this letter left Jerusalem around 45, 50 A.D., and it just finally arrived here in our hands. That's why we're digging into it and studying it here. Uh, Last week, we touched on a few big themes, how trials and testing should be a cause of joy for us, We learned about that because when we are tested, when we have trials, it means that something real is happening in our faith. Something real is happening. And so when we know something real is happening in our relationship with God, I hope that results in joy for us. Uh, Hey, we're growing. Hey, we're better understanding what it means to live for Jesus or to follow Jesus. That should bring us joy, and that's a good thing. Last week, we also talked about how the steadfastness, the steadfastness or the perseverance that we display in Christ in the midst of our trials and struggles is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. That work of perseverance we talked about, it is God's work in and through us to bring us through those trials, to bring us through those tests, and he does that to grow us and mature us in our faith. So that when we face a trial and when we rely on God and the work of the Holy Spirit to get us through, we emerge on the other side of that trial or test uh, with a stronger faith, with a more mature faith. And that's important. Uh, the Bible constantly wants us to be growing and engaging with our relationship with Jesus Christ so that we might become more mature in the faith. There's always somewhere we can be moving and growing in our faith with Jesus. And the last thing we talked about last week is how trials and testings, they are inevitable if we're following Jesus. Uh, if you want the easy life, following Jesus isn't for you. The Christian church for 2,000 years has been built on this notion that following Jesus is often, often sacrificial. It means we are parting with the old ways and turning to the new ways of God. And so as we do that, we are going to have trials, we are going to have tests, because we're going to be living in a world that often doesn't understand why we believe what we believe and why it matters so much to us. And so we have these trials that we face. And we cannot hope to grow in our faith if we avoid or shy away from all of these trials that are in front of us. It's how God grows us. It's how God matures us. So today as we move forward in James, uh, we're taking a bigger chunk of scripture. Uh, James, uh, here he's going to elaborate on what a trial is, on what a temptation is, which is different from what a trial is. 
And he's going to kind of drive home where the good in this world and in our lives actually comes from. And the good being God's definition of good, not our definition of good. So I'm going to dig into James here. Uh, James 1 verses 5 through 18 is our study text. I'm going to read 2, 3, and 4 to recap from last week and then jump right into verse 5. So James 1, 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So, raise your hand if you lack wisdom. Good, I, most of you are honest. You raised your hand. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, sometimes Lutherans don't participate a whole lot, but you did good this morning. I might have you do more later. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, if we're honest, we all lack wisdom, right? We lack wisdom on a various amount of things. Uh, a few of you in this congregation, you know who you are. If I have a problem with my car, I, I talk to you. I lack wisdom. Grant, that's you, buddy. Uh, there's others who we turn to in other areas of our lives when we lack wisdom. We look to an expert, somebody who's lived through it, been through it before. Uh, but James here is saying, hey, if you lack wisdom, godly wisdom, turn to the one who gives the wisdom. Turn to God. So maybe we have some wisdom in various areas of our lives, and maybe even in some faith-related things, God has blessed us and grown in us some maturity and some wisdom. But man, God's wisdom far outweighs our wisdom, period. There's no exceptions to that. And so we should ask for more. God likes to give good gifts to his children. Think of wisdom as an Oreo cookie. You can't have just one. If you give your kid an Oreo, they're going to come back and they're going to ask for more and more and more, right? Well, God wants to keep giving you wisdom, so we should keep going to the Lord and asking for wisdom. As Christians, we want to be wise about the world that we live in and what we are facing. We want to be wise about the scriptures and God's word and what we discover there. And God will gener generously answer our prayers to gain wisdom because he desires that we have wisdom wisdom as he has wisdom and he's always willing to give more it, it ties in really good with the children's message from earlier today right if we're in a trial if we're in a season of testing ask ask the lord for a better understanding of what it is you're going through and for what you need to go through it in a godly way so if you if you lack wisdom you should ask god and he will give generously and he's not going to be condescending to you and said shame 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 you should have asked last week no god will say hey i love you here's some more wisdom that one's a pretty simple verse. James uh, 1, verse 6. Now, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this one, because if you already admitted to not having a lot of wisdom, uh, you already know that sometimes you also have doubts, right? Sometimes we have doubts. Even pastors have doubts. Every human who has ever tried to follow Jesus has had doubts at times. So we're all in the same boat here with this. Uh, this, this verse here, when, when you ask, you must believe and not have doubt. This is really about where our faith and where our confidence is, is at. Believing rather than doubting, it's about our settled trust, our settled confidence that God is indeed good, 
that God is capable of answering that prayer or what we need, and that God is actually listening when we pray. All of these things are clear throughout the scriptures. God proves again and again and again his trustworthiness, that we can have confidence in him. He proves again and again through Jesus Christ, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and all the events surrounding it for thousands of years, he proves that he is good and that he is working for the good of those who love him. And that he's capable. God can actually back up his promises and do what it is that he said he is going to do. And then this is the one maybe we have the hardest time with, that God is listening. He's, he's actually listening to your prayer. Believe that he's listening. Uh, if you believe that, if you live into that reality, you're probably going to find yourself praying more. Be, because you're not going to view God as someone distant, way over there, who can't hear you unless you yell really loud. No, he is present in and through his Holy Spirit. And when you pray, when you approach him, he is there and he is listening. So that's what believing looks like when we, when we pray. Not that we're never going to have doubts, not that we're never going to be unsettled or things like that, but we want to start living into that place of belief, right? That, that settled trust and confidence in the Lord, rather than being a wave of the sea, which is unpredictable, uncertain, unstable. Uh, any of you watched the uh, Bermuda Triangle show where these, on History Channel where the divers are looking at all these shipwrecks and planes and stuff? One thing you learn every episode is how unpredictable the waves of the sea are because there are so many vessels and planes on the bottom of the ocean in that place known as the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, we don't want our faith to be like the waters of the Bermuda Triangle because God is not like that. We are to be firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and having confidence in him. We don't have to get blown every which way in that in our world. Look at Israel's history in the Old Testament, for example. When they wavered, when they were blown about like waves on the sea, they, they failed. They failed and they failed. They were overtaken by nations around them. They were not able to live into God's promises. But when they believed, when they had godly kings and rulers who led them according to God's law and righteousness, they prospered. They had that foundation. And so I think we're encouraged here to be people who have a confidence in Jesus, a confidence and a trust that he is good, that he is capable, and that he's actually listening and wants to help. Verse 7, that person talking about the unstable person, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So this wavering person that James is describing, this wavering person who is unstable, shouldn't expect to receive anything in prayer, and that's not really referring to God's ability to listen and provide. Many times we waver and we pray to God assuming that nothing's actually going to happen. We doubt, right? I've been there. I know many of us have been there. But we're doubting in God's power and God's goodness. And doubting God's goodness is actually a dishonor to him and who he is. It's actually sin, right? So uh, we don't want to dishonor God and his holiness and his promises and his trust. That is actually sin at work in us when we do that. And we all have done it. We've all sinned in this area, so I'm not pointing anyone out here. We are all in that boat. But James is encouraging us, try not to live there, okay? Don't live there in that place of doubt. Let's not be double-minded. Let's not profess something, Jesus is good, capable and listening, and then go pray and doubt when we pray. Let's not profess on Sunday, 
uh, the Apostles' Creed and the words there that really paint a picture of who God is and what he has done for us. Don't profess that and then go doubt that God can handle these circumstances in your life. Let's live continually in that place of settled trust and confidence. Verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. So there's a little bit of shifting gears here, right? Uh, every period in the world, ever, has had rich and poor, right? Uh, we, we tend to live in this sort of perpetual state of humanity where some people have wealth in the eyes of the world and some people don't. And the times in James's life, in Jerusalem and that area of the Roman Empire, were very much similar to the times we have now. So James, he's shifting gears a little bit, and this is one of these social contrasts that we talked about seeing in the book of James. And he's, here, he's looking about that idea of worldly wealth here, right? So what it boils down to is this. Both the poverty and being rich and wealthy, both of those things bring an enormous pressure on us and on all humans to focus on worldly issues rather than on Christ. Now, there's a whole lot of people in the middle that also struggle to focus on Christ, right? But he's using this sort of polarizing thing to drive home a point that whether you are extremely poor or extremely wealthy, both of those things will tempt you to look away from God, to look away from Christ, and to focus on those things. So if there's any boasting or taking pride in our worldly possessions, James says it looks more like this. For, for the lowly and humble, those who don't have the status and the wealth and the position in the world here, which was a large portion of the culture he was writing to, and especially the early church, so the lowly and the humble, by the world's standards, they can take pride in their spiritual riches in Christ Jesus, and Jesus will lift them up. Because they know they have actually received eternity in and through Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world that can affect that. It's secure. The treasures are in heaven, as Jesus would say and teach. And now James, he wants the rich, those who have worldly, earthly status, wealth, he wants them to boast, not in that, but in their humiliation, humbleness, knowing that in all, all of the worldly riches, they are temporary and they can be lost just like that, right? So if you have all of that stuff, you don't boast in it. You know that it's temporary. You know that you can't take it with you, right? And so James is trying to say, hey, uh, this is not something that his culture taught very well. It's not something that our culture teaches very well. Uh, what if we are a people who, no matter what our wealth is, we've had our humility and our boasting in Jesus Christ alone? What if that's where we were rooted? Uh, what if we're a people who only take pride in Jesus rather than stuff? That's the ideal I, I hope we're all working towards in our lives and in the church, right? Um, I like my stuff too. It's hard for me. Uh, but the stuff isn't why I'm here on this earth. It's Jesus. That's why I'm here on this earth. The stuff isn't my mission. More stuff isn't my mission. Jesus Christ is my mission. Something that we can for sure examine ourselves on there. So for James, poverty and wealth uh, may be a couple of the biggest challenges that Christians are ever going to face in any generation. In the eyes of the world, if you have very little or if you have a ton, again, not, it's not saying if you're in the middle there that you're somehow immune from that, but those extremes tend to drive people to focus on that stuff rather than on the Lord. 
Uh, and then he clarifies this in verse 11. He gives us a metaphor. He says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. It gives you the impression that James was writing mostly to those that didn't have a lot, which again was much of the early church in Christianity. So this verse simply is an analogy to illustrate that the rich, by any worldly standards, it is temporary. And rich by God's standards, it is eternal and cannot be taken away from you. Verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So that's a good one. It sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, right? That, that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers and, and such. We talked about perseverance last week in the sermon. And here it is again. It's in verse 12 and in verse 4. It's one of those themes through the book of James. And so if I were to paraphrase this verse 12, I might say something like this. Blessed is the one who lets the Holy Spirit work perseverance in and through the trials. So when we face those things, we rely on God's power. We rely on God's wisdom. We rely on God to lead us and pull us through, um, not on our own wisdom. When we allow God to work perseverance in us, we are taking steps into that eternal life reality that exists for all of us in Jesus today. All of us. We've talked about that at various times since I've been here over the last few years, but oftentimes we think of eternal life as later. No, if you know Jesus, it's now, and it's here, and you live into that now. And so allowing God to work that perseverance in us is allowing us to experience more of that eternal life now. Uh, and God promises that when we do so, when we do that, it ties to his promise to lift us up with crowns as victors of the battle, as co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. This is our eternal trajectory. This is uh, when we persevere in our trials in a godly and a holy way, we are on an eternal trajectory, growing and maturing in our faith. All right, so shifting gears a little bit, when trials become temptation, that's what we're going to talk about here next, or experiencing temptations to deal with trials in a way that's inconsistent with God's love and law. Maybe that's another way we could put it. So uh, take a chunk here, verses 13 through 15. It says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, trials versus temptations, two different things. So, trials, like we talked about last week, they are an opportunity to grow and mature and persevere. They can be trials that sometimes are challenges set before us by God, like good things set before us. They can also be trials that come because of the broken world that we live in, and then we have to navigate now in a godly way. And our response will show the reality of our faith. Remember, it'll push our faith out into the open, for better or for worse. So that's a trial. Now, a temptation comes as a result of, I think, two things, mainly one. Uh, one, we could say the work of the evil one, the evil systems, the demonic influences, the, the crud in the world can lead us into temptation, right? 
But at the end of the day, James is saying this, it is our own sinful disposition, our desires, our nature that works against God's love and grace in our lives. That is what leads us to temptation. So let's be clear, as James says here, God is not tempting you. God is not tempting you. And we should not ascribe evil to God when God is good and has proved it. All of God's nature, his love, his work on earth, it is to combat and do away with the evil and the things that tempt us. He's not tempting us into it. And so if there's a temptation in front of you, don't blame God for putting it there. That is the very thing that God is working against and wants to work against and heal you from and save you from and take you away from. So let's resist the urge to blame God for the sin that entangles us, which if you're like me, you've been there and you've blamed God for those things. Verse 14 talks about this like dragged away. Uh, Some translations say lured, enticed. This is actually a fishing metaphor. So we are the fish and this, this really shiny lure is the temptation and we don't care about the hook, we just react and we grab it and now we're hooked. That's the metaphor that he's writing with here. In verse 15, it gives this progression of sin. Desires lead to sin, lead to death. So verse 15 talks about what happens when sin takes root and it sort of multiplies and takes over in our lives. Desires not of God lead to thoughts and acts against God. And that mentality, that highway, that way of life leads not to life in Christ, but to death apart from Christ. So remember, trials are not necessarily temptations, and God is not tempting you. It is sin and our own sinful desires that lead us into temptation, and the temptations are usually what we want to do to try to fix the problem we're in, not, rather than what God wants to do to fix the problem we are in, or the trial we are in. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, right? That is a, honoring this scripture in James that says God is not leading us into temptation. He's not putting a temptation in front of us to trip on or stumble on. So Lord, lead us not into temptation. It is a prayer of protection from evil and protection from ourselves in our own sinful nature. So that's the difference between temptations and trials. Now verse 16 and 17, James writes this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Verse 16, do not be deceived by blaming God for your sin, like we were just talking about, or for blaming God for the evil of the world. That would be being deceived. So don't do that, he's saying. Verse 17, he's saying, actually, God is the giver of all that is good and perfect. God's intentions are always good. Romans 8.28 reinforces that in Paul's writings. It says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his prayers. So nothing in this world is truly good if it didn't originate with God. And that might be hard for us to wrap our heads around because we use the word good a lot and we throw it around a lot. Uh, God is the gold standard for what is good. If it doesn't measure up to God, we probably shouldn't call it good. I'm not saying you need to like tiptoe around the word or anything like that, but when you really think about it, If something is truly good and holy and pure, that came from God. And it's not about us saying, oh, this is good, it must be from God. That's exactly the opposite of what James is leading us to do here. He's saying, get to know God so that you will know what is good. 
and then we won't be attributing things that are less than good or evil to God. It's about God saying, this is good, and I want you to chase after good things found in me. And then verse 17 talks about heavenly lights, and we're going to sing a song about that here in a little bit. Uh, Heavenly lights, God created them, Genesis 1 and 2, and thus is the father of them, which the lights that we live by, the very physical lights, right? It's a metaphor through the scriptures, but the actual light that we live by is a huge gift from God that they would have all said, yes, this is a good thing. This is a good example of what God gives as gifts. And so rather than being like changing and shifting shadows, he kind of plays out this light and dark metaphor here. He's saying God is constant and God is good. He is a firm foundation. He is a source of light in the darkness. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. Now, a few verses earlier, we talked about sin giving birth and where that leads. Now he's talking about birth through the word of truth. Uh, Now, this could be a reference to the word uh, creating Adam and Eve, humanity, in uh, the world in Genesis 1 and 2. Whether it is to that, we don't know for sure, but James is certainly referencing the spiritual salvation through the gospel, through the word, through the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he talks about these first fruits and bearers of the light to the world. So we as Christians, we are brought forth through birth or rebirth. Remember your baptism. That's, that's exactly what baptism embodies. We are brought to this birth, and, and that by grace through faith, we are brought from the darkness now to the light. These early Christians James is writing to, they are the first fruits to receive this good news and this gospel and be part of the whole big harvest that is the kingdom of God. And we today as Christians, we're not the first fruits, we're, we're down the road a little wise here, but we are part of the exact same spiritual harvest of the kingdom of God. So that's a lot to chew on, and I hope that some things have stuck with you here as we went through this passage. Just a couple of things to kind of summarize. Uh, What are our takeaways for this? I think the first big thing James would say here is, God is the giver of wisdom and all that is good. And each of us can grow in our ability to know what that is and to receive more by asking. When we are lacking the good things, when we are lacking the wisdom, when we are lacking the ability to fight our temptations or get through these trials, God is good and will provide. That's where we go back to. God is good, capable, and listening. And then the second sort of takeaway is that uh, I want us to recognize and live with a better understanding of what is a trial and what is a temptation. Uh, Because trials can really be good, That doesn't mean they're fun, but they can be good. And they often bring about the best of our faith and opportunities to grow in Christ. Temptations, though, are not good, and they are not of God. And far too often we are blaming God, maybe not with words, but far too often we are blaming God for the sin in our lives and for what sin causes us to do. So let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's recognize our own sin. Let's recognize the depths that we can be deceived in from our sin, from evil. And let's turn that burden over to Jesus Christ, the giver of good gifts, the father of light. And let's repent. Let's turn away. 
and let's fix our eyes on the giver of every good and perfect gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for being the giver of good and perfect gifts, Lord, and um, our definition of good falls short, Lord. We admit that, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us more wisdom on what is truly good, honoring and pleasing to you. Uh, So, Lord, there's a lot of challenging things in this passage, Lord. I pray that we would examine our lives uh, and and not try to fit this passage into our lives, but to try to fit our lives into this passage, Lord. Um, Would we live in a way that honors you in our trials, Lord, would we live in a way that honors you when we are faced with temptations put there from our own evil desires? Lord, through Jesus Christ, we experience freedom, forgiveness, grace. Lord, would you help us to be conquerors of those things in ways that are honorable to God and holy and consistent with Jesus and consistent with your law and your holiness. So Lord, wherever we're at today, whatever trials we are going through, Lord, I pray that you would lead us through by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from evil. Lord, may we taste and see that you truly are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.